Beloved, we come to our seventh message in this series on the book of Jonah. I invite you to turn to Jonah, uh, chapter 3, as we consider this third chapter uh, this evening um, in this series on the salvation belongs to the Lord. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, efficacious, authoritative, and life-transforming word. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. Well, here is the reading of God's word. Let us now pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Our Father, we pray that you would indeed illuminate our hearts and minds by your Spirit as we study. Uh, your word, as we hear your word proclaimed, Lord, we pray that we would see Jesus, uh, that your spirit would uh, further sanctify us and mold us more and more into the image of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we come to the third chapter of this uh, engaging uh, book here, uh, somewhat in the middle of our Bibles in the Minor uh, Prophets. And Uh, We are here, it's good to take a little time to review uh, where we have come from as we come into this third chapter. Uh, So Jonah uh, lived and ministered in the 8th century B.C. during the reign of Jeroboam II, King Jeroboam II, between the years 793 and 753 B.C. As we have mentioned in previous messages, Jonah is a historical account. This is not a uh, a fairy story. This is uh, not a fiction. This is fact. It's historical fact. And so we have these years. We know when Jonah ministered. And God commanded Jonah at the outset of this book to preach to the Ninevites, to preach to the Ninevites to repent of their evil ways. Verse 1, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. We've considered in the past how evil does not stay in the corners and in the closets. The Lord sees it all, and it had risen up to the Lord, and the Lord sent his prophet to preach to 
the Ninevites and to call out against this sin. Of course, rather than joyfully rising up and obeying God's commission, he instead rose up and fled to the port city of Joppa and boarded a ship for Tarshish and headed 2,500 miles in the wrong direction. It says twice in chapter 1 that Jonah fled the presence of the Lord. And we have considered that how often We ourselves do not receive the commission that Christ has given to us to take the gospel to our neighbors, our friends, our family, the nations. We are reticent, just as this reticent prophet often uh, was at the beginning there. And we find ourselves at times fleeing the presence of the Lord as well, getting caught up in sin. We flee God's presence. You can't really be away from God's presence, but we, we, we try to make ourselves believe that we can. And we hide in the bushes from God like Adam and Eve did. He fled the presence of the Lord. While Jonah was taking then uh, a splendid nap in the cargo ship heading for Tarshish, God, verse 4, hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship, the ship rather, threatened to break up. These experienced sailors were so afraid of this storm that they began to cry out to their gods in despair. They began to throw uh, their cargo into uh, the sea, all while Jonah was sleeping. The captain of the ship then found Jonah and woke him up from his slumber and said, What are you doing? How can you be sleeping? We are all going to die. Cry out to your God, Jonah. For perhaps Jonah's God was offended, they thought. Well, Jonah admitted his guilt. He was fleeing from the one true God who made the land and the sea. Jonah, more willing to die than carry out the mission that God had given him, asked the sailors to throw him into the sea. And Jonah was thrown overboard and the storm ceased immediately. No one could save him now. Jonah was in the sea. The ship kept going. And there he was. He was left to die in the middle of the ocean. Then something amazing happened. A massive fish, probably a whale, sent by God himself, swallowed up Jonah whole. Imagine that experience for a moment. A friend of mine, I'm just remembering a story, uh, told me that he was down uh, doing some, some uh, deep-sea diving. And this, I don't, I don't remember what kind of fish it was, but it was a gigantic fish, probably as big as this whole front row here, had uh, started, uh, had grabbed him and started uh, bringing him into his mouth. And he grabbed, this is a true story, he grabbed a knife, which he had in his side, just in case something like this would possibly happen, and began to stab the fish uh, in the head as it was trying to, to eat him. And he got away. Uh, and uh, as he got back up to the boat, and uh, he was looking down, and, and his, um, uh, his, his boots, or whatever he had on there that he was swimming with, his flippers were, were um, totally destroyed. Um, This kind of thing uh, has happened in real life, but people usually don't survive it. Jonah was swallowed up by a whale. 
Uh, none of us would have bet that he would survive this, but the Lord had a plan, and he sent the whale. In chapter 2, Jonah records the prayer that he offered while inside this great fish. The prayer is filled with God-directed praise and gratitude for his covenant faithfulness and God's mercy shown to him. And so Jonah rejoiced in God's faithfulness, and his heart was turned, and, and, and now he wanted to serve uh, the Lord. And so after spending three days in the fish, it states in verse 10 that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. And that brings us to the passage we are in this evening, Jonah 3, verses 1 through 10. And so after the fish had vomited uh, Jonah uh, out, you can imagine how bad he smelled uh, when he was vomited out by the fish and he's uh, hopefully you know, got a shower before he went to minister to the people of Nineveh. Uh, but here he is, he's full of, of, of whale vomit, and he's walking along, and he's headed now to Nineveh. In fact, God gave him a second commission. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So different than his response in chapter 1, verse 3 states that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, I want to pause for just a minute. Wouldn't it just been so much easier if Jonah, the first time, would have just risen up and done what God had commanded? And I want to say this. I want to say, first of all, a word to the children here tonight. Kids, Listen to Pastor John for just a minute. I hope you're listening the whole time, but just listen really carefully at this moment. It's always better to do what God tells you to do the first time. The first time. Because if you do it against God the first time, then God in his grace and fatherly mercy brings discipline kind of like your parents do when you don't do what you're supposed to do the first time. And you think, well, why didn't I do it this way the first time? I wouldn't have been disciplined like this. Well, this is true of life, not only for our children, but for us as adults. It always is best to do what God tells us to do the first time. And let's not test the Lord. God is loving enough to discipline us, and that discipline can at times be severe and challenging. But the Lord is gracious even to bring that when we need it. Jonah needed it. He could have done it a different way. He chose this way, and God, of course, uh, brought discipline upon him, but then worked in his life. God's ways are mysterious. Jonah's ways were stubborn. Always best to follow God's word. This passage then says that Nineveh was a great city. It said it was three days' journey in breadth. Now, this is a big city. You say, well, how big is that? Well, it's a big city. In fact, we know how big it is in the population because of the, uh, the last verse uh, in the book where it says that uh, the city had 120,000 uh, in it. Um, Jerusalem at the time had about 30,000 people in it. This was a massive city. And so as Jonah walked through this great city, he cried out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, look with me at verse 5. And this is one of the greatest miracles in all of the Bible in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Do not pass over that sentence. Do you remember the description 
that I gave, the historical accounts that I gave earlier on in the series of these people, the extraordinary wickedness of the Ninevites, the Assyrian people, the idolatrous child sacrifice and skinning alive of enemies who were caught prisoners of war. These were an exceedingly wicked people. And here we have these words, and the people of Nineveh believed God. Do you ever think sometimes that there are people in this world that are beyond the grace of God? I find myself wandering into those spaces, not just individuals, but entire peoples, entire countries, thinking, well, they are so, so far gone into their idolatry and their wickedness that there's just, I just don't know how it would would ever happen. Well, the answer is that what we heard this morning, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Amen? It's why we send missionaries into uh, the difficult places in the world so that the gospel will go to people. How will they hear without a preacher? Romans chapter 10. And so we send uh, missionaries and church planters all over the world to reach out uh, to the lost, even in those places that are dangerous. These idolatrous, violent, wicked people believed God's word as it was preached by Jonah. The greatest to the least of them responded to the news of God's truth by calling for a fast and putting on sackcloth. You say, well, what's that, Pastor John? Why would they put on sackcloth? Sackcloth was this coarse material that represented, it was made of goat hair, and it represented a people who were in mourning. Oftentimes, prisoners would be made to wear this. Poor people would wear this, and it was put on by people to show that they were in mourning and in deep repentance. This may have been the greatest work of conversion and revival the world has ever known. And as with other great revivals in history, it is through the simple means of the proclamation of the word that people are saved and lives are transformed. Can you imagine if a a church growth team from the 20th century got a hold of Jonah right right when he was barfed up from the whale? All right, Jonah, come to our our church growth uh, ministry Instructions, and we're going to show you how you can build the church and how you can get these people saved. The first thing is you need great Assyrian coffee. That's the first thing. The second thing is you need a rocking Assyrian praise band. The third thing is there's an Assyrian shop down the road we can get a smoke machine and a great light show. That is really where it's at because then the Assyrians will be drawn in and then you can reach them. Oh no. Can you imagine if Jonah was pulled in to a time machine and, 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 and spoke to modern-day uh, church-planting so-called experts? Jonah preached the word. And even the king of Assyria, when he heard the word of God, arose from his throne, removed his regal robes, put on sackcloth, and threw himself into the dust. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Removing that which was kind of a symbol of authority and wealth and power. 
he removes that and he puts on the sackcloth and throws himself in the dust from kings to the peasant. All of them are in deep repentance. Of course, the king issues this decree that a fast will be observed by all living creatures in the kingdom, that all should cry out for God's mercy, that everyone should turn from his evil ways and the violence of his hands. What the king says after making the proclamation is very interesting. Look at verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish, so that we may not perish. Notice that he does not in any way presume upon God's mercy here, as so many do in our own day, as if people deserve God's mercy, as if they have a right to God's mercy. No, the king demonstrates true brokenness and repentance in his submission to God's will, coming with no demands, coming with no qualifications. He knows that they all, including himself, deserve God's just condemnation and wrath, so he simply asks God for undeserved mercy. Perhaps he will have mercy even on us. And so then God sees their repentance and the actions flowing from their repentance. And verse 10 states that God relented of the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. What a glorious moment in redemptive history. What a glorious moment in the history of redemption. What a memorable scene in the history of mission as we think about the mission of the church. When God, through the simple preaching of the word, through this reluctant prophet, saved an entire city of idol worshipers. Now, these kinds of things have never happened in this kind of measure, but there are some extraordinary stories of entire villages coming to know Christ, you know. Maybe you've heard some of these stories. Uh, there, about 25 years ago or so, uh, there were some missionaries that went into this village in Papua New Guinea. Uh, and there's actually a, a wonderful kind of documentary on this that you can watch. I would encourage you to. Uh, it's called Itau, Itau, which is the, 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 uh, the words in this language of these, um, these villagers that, that mean, I believe. And these missionaries from the New Tribes Mission came in and they, they, they taught God's word and they walked the entire village through the entirety of the Bible. And they didn't tell, tell them what was coming next. So they be, began with creation, all of the promises, the temple sacrifices, the prophets, all the prophecies, talking about the Messiah who's going to come, who would this be, the angelic uh, announcements to Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist being born and, and his public ministry pointing to Christ, and then Mary uh, receiving this word from, uh, from Angel Gabriel as well that we looked at this morning, and then Jesus is born, and then he lives this life and does miracles, and they're not telling him the end. And they're going all the way through. And then Christ dies on the cross for their sin. And then he's raised from the dead. And then he's ascended into heaven and exalted to the right hand of God. And the missionaries say, and this is the Messiah. He has done all of this for you to pay for your sins, for your idolatry. And they're all sitting there and just silence. There are, there are women who are about to have babies who are, who, are, who are like laying down on a bed listening. They don't want to miss anything. The whole village is there. 
And this man stands up and he says, Etau, Etau, I believe, I believe. And he begins to, to, to say back in his own language the gospel so clearly about what Christ had done for him and what Christ had done for them. And then another man stands up and says, Etau, I believe. And then a woman stands up and says, I believe. And then suddenly the whole village is standing up saying, I believe. And they're literally, literally, very unpresbyterian, jumping up and down for two hours, for two solid hours saying, I believe, I believe. And then, interestingly, they are suddenly struck with the fact that their relatives died in their sin and in their idolatry. And they began to weep and to mourn. And then their hearts were set on fire to reach out to others. Does this all sound familiar? It's called the Christian life. And so they wanted to go to other villages, to many of their former enemies to share the gospel with them. And so they started being sent out as missionaries into other parts of Papua New Guinea. What an amazing event. But think of this. This is nothing. This is a small village of a couple hundred people in Papua New Guinea. These Ninevites were the enemies of Israel, 120,000 of them throwing themselves and the dust and the ashes. What can we learn from this event in redemptive history that the world has never seen anything like it? What can we learn from this exciting narrative? What do we learn about God and His Word here? What do we learn from this text to help shape our faith? Well, there are five things I want us to consider tonight. The first one is this. God is patient and his love is steadfast. God is patient and his love is steadfast. Isn't God's patience powerfully exhibited in this text? We see it exhibited to Jonah. We see it exhibited to Jonah. Let's think for a moment again about Jonah's actions. In verses 1 through 3 of the first chapter, Jonah directly disobeys God's commands to go to Nineveh and preach his message to them fleeing the presence of the Lord. In verse 12, Jonah would rather die than do the will of God. He asked to be hurled into the raging sea. Jonah's rebellion deserved God's anger and judgment, not his patience. But God's tender patience is what is revealed in chapter 3 and verse 1 when the word of the Lord came to Jonah for the second time, for the second time. It would have been incredibly kind and patient of God to simply rescue Jonah from the raging sea and to barf him up somewhere else and get a new prophet, get someone else. Jonah, you had your chance. What an opportunity. You can go back now. We're going to get this person over here to do it, to replace him. But God, in his patient love with Jonah, gives him a second commissioning, giving the same marching orders that he gave to Jonah the first time around. Doesn't God's action remind us of the way that he often deals with you and with me? 
when so often our lives are a contradiction of his commands, what he commands us to do, how he commands us to live. He doesn't cast us off as we deserve. You know, if somebody treated us like we often respond to God, we would quickly and impatiently deal with this person. But God is not like us. He is patient. He is kind. And He doesn't cast us off as we deserve. Oh, how patient God has been with each one of us as He was with Jonah. How many times in prayer have you said, Oh God, why do you continue to love me the way you do? Well, we know why. Because He loves us with an everlasting love that is infinite and unchanging. A love that is rooted in His covenant promises which are fulfilled in the life death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's because of the blood of Christ that we are loved everlastingly. Jesus is the perfect expression of the love of God, and through faith in Him, we are His adopted children, never to be forsaken. And this glorious reality makes us want to live for God with greater measures of gratitude and obedience great measures of love, greater measures of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. It's not a list of rules and demands and and guilt-ridden preaching that makes us want to honor and serve and glorify God. It's His tender love and His kindness and His patience. Why would we not not want to serve this God with growing measures of obedience and love? The second truth that emerges from this text is that God's word is the primary means by which he saves and nourishes his elect. God's word is the primary means by which he saves and nourishes his elect. It is through the word of God that he has spoken the world into existence, and it's through his word that he upholds the world, and it's also through his word that he creates his church, that he calls and gathers and protects and preserves his elect. It's through his word. And we see that here. Notice in this text what God has chosen to use to bring about the biggest spiritual revival the world has ever known. It's the simple preaching of the word of God. God gave him a simple command. Call out against it the message that I tell you. Faithful teaching and preaching is preaching what is there on the page and not what you wished was there or what you are casting onto the text. There are two important words to remember about preaching. It's exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is coming to the text as the servant. You you are the servant of the text and not vice versa. Exegesis is taking from the Bible what it is saying in its own context and applying it to our lives today. Eisegesis, out, ice out, is putting on the text something. So the text becomes the servant of the pastor to bring forth his own message. And sadly, that's what we so often see today. What We must always be careful of. And so God uses the simple message that 
that he tells Jonah to preach. Tell the Ninevites the message I have commissioned you to preach. Nothing more, nothing less. Do not add to the message. Do not take away from the message. Just preach the message. And wouldn't so many of our problems in the modern church be solved if if pastors and seminary professors would simply do what Jonah did in verse 3. The Apostle Paul, when leaving the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, could express with a clear conscience that he was innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so the proclamation of God's word by his commissioned prophets, apostles, and elders is his primary means of calling sinners out of darkness and into his marvelous light, into his kingdom. What is a stumbling block to some and to others foolishness? To those who are being saved, gospel proclamation is the power of God and is the wisdom of God. Look with me in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Notice what we are appointed to. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. And I was mentioning in Sunday school this morning as we were unpacking question 155 of the Westminster Larger Catechism that in the medieval Roman Catholic Church, the focus was so often placed uh, in the medieval Catholic Church on uh, superstition, uh, on rituals, uh, on church authority, uh, and all of these kinds of things. And it was from these things that people were getting grace and such. I think I mentioned it in my morning sermon as well. But here we find that it's the word of the cross in which the saving power of God resides. It's through the word of the cross that the saving power and wisdom of God resides. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is... I'm sorry, chapter 1 and verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? The power of God. What's the power of God? The word of the cross. What's the word of the cross? The gospel. It's the gospel. For it is written, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom and Americans seek entertainment. Oh, wait, that's not in there. You could add a lot of stuff in there about what people want. And what they think is going to convince them to be saved in some sense. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we, the apostles, preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What's the greatest example, by the way, of God choosing the low and despised and the weak to shame the strong? It's Christ on the cross. It's Christ on the cross. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. Of course, he's writing from Corinth to the Romans. And all of these cities have all this, these power structures, military and philosophy, education and, and, um, and government and, and, and all of these things where people, just like today, are saying, this is where the power is. This is where the wisdom is. This is where the glory is. And the Jews who are demanding signs are saying, that's not the sign, this man hanging on a cross That can't be our Messiah. Our Messiah is going to free us and liberate us from Roman bondage. And the Greeks are saying, that's wisdom? That person hanging on the cross is wisdom? Oh no, I'll take take the, 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 the ancient philosophers. But you see, God, in order to to make foolish the wisdom of this world, he gives his own wisdom, which is his son, who is the word of God, the word made flesh, and who is the wisdom and the power of God. And it's through the cross that he will save his people from their sins. Amen. That is the gospel. And that's so often what we forget as we do ministry. We try to flex in all these worldly ways to bring people in. And it's not through these things that we want to bring people into the church. It's through the preaching of the word. It's through the sharing of the gospel with friends and neighbors. It's the word of the cross that is the power of God unto salvation. Paul says it in Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, even violent, wicked Ninevites. This is what God has done and is doing. And look at verse 29. Why does he do these things? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. And we cannot forget verses 1 through 5 of the next chapter. 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Again, the word of the cross. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. This is where lives will be changed. It's through the proclamation, the teaching, and the sharing of this gospel that God's Spirit is operative, that the power and wisdom of God is set forth, and that lives are changed. Verse 5 Why is this? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in what? The power of God. 
Do you want to be filled with the power of God? Do you want this church to be filled with the power of God? Not a rhetorical question. Do you? Then we must preach the gospel. We must share the gospel. We must take the gospel to the ends of the earth. For it's this gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And when church growth experts replace the heralding of God's truth with entertainment and programs and all other kinds of things, they are, in essence, declaring themselves to be wiser than God. For God has chosen the simple, unadorned means of word-centered proclamation to advance his kingdom and destroy the works of the devil. Here in our text, God saves an entire pagan city through the simple means of a recommissioned prophet who merely preached the message of God. When something like this happens, this amazing thing happens, through such unimpressive means, who ends up getting the glory? God does. That's the point. That's the point of God telling Gideon, no, I think you have too many. Let's, let's, let's lower those numbers a little bit. That's how God shows his glory and gets the glory by using means and that are unimpressive to the world by doing things that are impossible with man but possible with God, like Abraham's wife Sarah getting pregnant, like Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife getting pregnant in their old age, like a virgin giving birth to the Messiah. That's the whole point. God gets the glory. When the ordinary means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayer are central in the life of the church, two things are bound to happen. Number one, through faith, God's redeemed are constantly driven to Christ for forgiveness, for strength, and for comfort. Forgiveness, strength, and comfort. Secondly, God gets all the glory. You see, when we do ministry through God's means, we do ministry on his terms and not on the world's and not on the idolatrous replacements. The power of God's word is nowhere more plain than here in Jonah chapter 3. The third truth that emerges from our text is that God's word, when received by grace through faith, causes true spirit-filled repentance from sin. God's word, when received by grace through faith, causes true, spirit-filled repentance from sin. All of us live in a culture that takes sin lightly. There's a light-hearted view of sin. We often even find ourselves laughing at things that later we think, I shouldn't have been laughing at that. That was, that was, that was terrible. That was blasphemous. I shouldn't be laughing at things like this. Our culture does have this casual and light-hearted view of sin. The response of the Ninevites to, to God's message is almost shocking. They did not receive God's word with half-hearted, a half-hearted shrug of the shoulders. Rather, as we mentioned earlier, from the king to the peasant, they together threw themselves into the dust with sackcloth. And they repented of specific sins, 
like violent behavior. Repentance, when truly biblical repentance, not only repents in a general way, but of specific sins, specifically. Here's the point. True faith is always accompanied by true repentance, by true sorrow for sin. Our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 15, it states this, that repentance is, quote, of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. None may expect pardon without it. That doesn't mean that repentance is a work that we add to the work of Christ in order to be saved. It means that when we are saved and brought into union with Christ, repentance is one of those gifts that is given to us along with faith. We show repentance when we are born again. Christ himself says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 13, 5. And so here we see the Ninevites repenting for the first time. But this is not the only time a person should repent. It's not just sort of a one-time thing. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a lifestyle of repentance. We are always daily turning from sin and turning to Christ. It's an ongoing activity. Luther, in his 95 Theses, wrote this, quote, Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. And the fruit of true repentance is a life of ongoing faith and repentance, a continual turning from sin to an ever-increasing delight in Christ and his word. Well, the fourth truth that emerges from this text is that God does not change his mind or his sovereign will. God does not change his mind. And I just want to speak briefly to this. Some will come to this text and think, what in the world's going on? It, it looks here like God changed his mind. Does that mean that God is kind of changing his mind along with us? Is he uh, sort of like us? He's meaning to do one thing, and then he thinks, no, I'm going to do something else, and uh, can just be wishy-washy at times. Well, well, of course not. When we come to texts like this, we must weigh them against other passages, like Numbers 23, 19, which says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. God never changes his mind. Ever. Ever. <laughs> he never changes his mind. And not only is this text using <clears throat> anthropomorphic language, that is language um, of God uh, revealing himself in kind of terms that humans can understand, for instance, like God's, it talks about God's right hand. God doesn't have a right hand. But this language is being used about God having a right hand, for instance, or God having eyes that see, so that we can understand analogically our God. God is so great and infinite and powerful and mysterious and beyond us that unless he communicated to us, like we often will communicate to children, in fact, Calvin says God prattles to us in his word. We say, man, God's word is so deep and so difficult to understand in places. Yes, but this is God's baby talk to us. And the way he does this in love so that we understand him is to communicate in ways we can understand. And so this anthropomorphic language, this, this language of God describing himself, revealing himself in kind of human terms helps us to understand him. But, but we must understand that God isn't changing his mind here 
we must also understand that the Nineveh God was going to destroy no longer existed. The wicked, violent, and idolatrous nation of Nineveh was now by the sovereign mercy of God, a repentant nation that believed in God. And then fifthly and finally, salvation is paid for by the blood of Christ. Was God's mercy on Nineveh free? Some have the notion that God just, you know, waves his hand. You're all forgiven. And it's really sort of disconnected from the work of Christ. Well, oh no, God does not save anyone with a benevolent wave of the hand. You see, God is holy and God is perfectly just and no sin can go unaccounted for. We need a mediator. This is why this time of year is so special as we think about the fact that God sent his son into the world to be that mediator, to fulfill all of God's covenant promises and to save us from our sins. So how can God forgive Nineveh for their sins? Through faith. Faith in what? Faith in God and his promises, which are fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so while grace is free, free grace in that we cannot earn it, it is not free in that Christ paid for it with his very own blood, which we will celebrate at the Lord's table in just a few moments. Look at verse 5 again. The Ninevites believed God. This reminds us of Genesis 15 when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Like Abraham, like us, this righteousness was accredited to the Ninevites. Whose righteousness? The righteousness of Christ, the coming Messiah. God is not bound by space and time and he works in this way. We must remember that the salvation poured out upon these 8th century Ninevites is rooted in the person and finished work of Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And so as we approach the Lord's table this evening, we are reminded of this glorious reality. For in this supper, the person and finished work of Christ is preached visibly to our eyes. Christ is offering himself to us at the table. The Father is offering his Son to us at the table. We receive him and rest in him and partake of him spiritually and yet really. The broken bread reminds us of Christ's body bruised and beaten for us. And the wine reminds us of Christ's blood that was spilled as he was crucified on Calvary. And so we come to this table remembering God's promises remembering his patience, remembering his steadfast love, remembering his kindness to us in Christ, his kindness to Jonah, his kindness to us, his sovereign purpose of saving the Ninevites, his sovereign purpose in saving us. Let us put our hope and our faith and our trust in Christ alone for our salvation. Let us, by way of gratitude and love, not push away God's commands and then have to be brought back to them. Let us Obey all the way and right away for the glory of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word in Jonah. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for all the truth that's packed into this, this chapter of which we have just brushed over in many ways. And we ask, Lord, that you would apply it to our lives and feed and nourish us uh, upon 
your son, even as we come to the table, we pray in Jesus' name.